Well, I think us deconstructors, like we've 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 been hurt by the church. We've been literally traumatized and abused mm-hmm. in some cases by the church. And um, this movement is is starting. It's gaining. It's growing for really good reasons. And I think also for really good reason at the root of a lot of what we're doing is processing trauma and feelings yeah. and um, emotions and pain. Um, and I think it would only strengthen our work and our movement if we also incorporated a, I hesitate to say theological perspective because I don't necessarily like feel like everyone is okay with working God back into this, but at least a systematic approach where we look at things like the history of the church, how it has been used to dominate other cultures, uh, minority cultures especially, how it's been tied to colonialism and domination through war, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And if we were to kind of incorporate a historical or a systematic approach into this deconstruction, I think it only, not only strengthens our movement, but also kind of, um, I, I hesitate to use this word too, but legitimizes it. Mm -hmm. to people who take a more scientific approach to things or a more systematic approach to things. Um, Because I've heard over and over again, folks in our movement are just made fun of for like being too emotional or like, you know, um, babies or whatever, because Mm -hmm. we're, because we're doing this really hard work. It takes a lot of courage to do what we're doing. Um, And I certainly don't feel a need to appeal to those people. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's it's that I had been affected by being two and a half years in academia and maybe taking yeah. an academic approach. Like that's mm-hmm. probably not the right word either. But um, incorporating that into this too. Well, I see. I mean, you're you're also in a very like structured uh, tradition. Mm-hmm. So like that's that's very important to you. It kind of helps organize your world. And I come from a less structured tradition. And so I see um, deconstruction as like kind of meaningfully, like disorganized isn't the right word, but you know, I feel like there's backlash anytime someone tries to rise up and like call themselves a leader, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> like with Josh Harris. Mm-hmm. Uh, and rightfully so, I have a lot of thoughts about that situation but I think so many of us are traumatized by that kind of hierarchy and uh, and I'm you're not advocating for like a leader or like a hierarchy but I I think a lot of us kind of bristle at structure because of that um but I think I think um Phil Drysdale, mm-hmm. he's, he's really good at like putting structure into this kind of structure less seeming process. Mm-hmm. Like he's done mm-hmm. a lot of research about like what people go through, like different kind of phases of deconstruction. And like, he would argue that there there's like a lot of debate, I think about like whether people should reconstruct or, you know, whatever. But he he would argue that reconstruction is an inherent process of deconstruction mm. because when you're deconstructing your belief system, you're reconstructing your own belief system. Yeah. And I, I think there's some truth in that, but I, I also, I also understand why, because a lot of people who make the argument about reconstruction, it's more like, oh, you need you need to have a faith. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, you need to have like reconstruction is when you you come to a belief system, a faith system, or mm-hmm. like a religious mm-hmm. tradition. But that's mm-hmm. not going to happen for everybody, and it should not ever be a requirement. Yeah, right. I think I think that's an important distinction that. Um, 
I've, I, I actually haven't heard someone in our community advocate for reconstruction so directly like that, but it does kind of make sense. And maybe mm-hmm. this is a really bad comparison. And if it's going to sound traumatic, we can um, cut it out because it's not, it's not an apples to apples or an oranges to oranges, but it's like when someone is overcoming like an addiction and they let go or like even just like a bad habit or a, a habit in general um, that they usually the process is that in order to let go of something, you then have a void. There's some space in your life, whether mm-hmm. that's a um, emotional space, a physical space, um, a new space on your calendar or on your clock, mm-hmm. you know, that's now empty, that it's healthy sometimes to like replace that addiction, that habit or whatever with something more healthy. And um so I'm, I'm not making any correlation or comparison to like the bad part of that, like addiction and bad habits, but anytime something is taken away, uh, there, there is a gap left behind and you do have to fill that gap. No, you could fill that gap with anything, but I do think that, um, that maybe that's a valid, a valid perspective in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I, I I do think that when we change our beliefs, we're changing them to something, even if it's that's right. To an even unbelief. if it's to nothing. Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah, and that's I, what and I was I trying to say. To say like, you know, people Christians love to argue that like, oh, atheists, like you have to have faith to not believe it. That's not what I'm talking about. Right. I'm right. talking about if you move from believing in God to believing there is no God. That's a, that's a belief. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, and it's, it's going to inform decisions in your life. Yeah. And it's, and it's valid. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wrestling with God is an invitation to bring your questions, your doubts, and your frustrations to God to engage in the struggle of flesh and faith. Those who wrestle acknowledge that they will never have all the answers, but know that the wrestling is still worth it. On this podcast, we hold space for those who have engaged in the struggle, and we invite you to join us as we sit in the tension of faith and doubt and press forward in wrestling with God. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Wrestling with God. Uh, this is episode five of season two, and uh, this is Megan, and I'm here with Gabriel. Yay! Hello, everybody. Um, and we're just we've just been kind of chatting about deconstruction and the deconstruction world, and just kind of what's going on, um, and and different expectations <laughs> that people have. Um, so yeah, so one thing that I've seen going on lately in the deconstruction space, it seems like, and this isn't probably super new, but it seems like evangelicals have, um, it seems they're becoming wise to, you know, what's going on. Uh, and, and we can talk later about whether we want to call this a movement or whatever, but there's definitely something going on, right? There's something in the water. People are changing their beliefs. They're becoming disillusioned with the church. And, and I, I think uh, that can't really be argued. Um, and so call it a movement, whatever. For this purpose, I'm just going to call it a movement. Um, it's a disorganized movement. It's not organized in any way, but for these purposes of conversation, I'll call it that. Well, so, um, well, I think that's fair. And I think it's fair to call it a movement because it is because it is something that is held in common by a large number of people. Yeah. Like, yes, there's no like organization necessarily. There's no hierarchical leadership. There's no like stuff that you would see in a typical layout of like a organizational movement Mm -hmm. there's like none of that um even if we do have some very like uh uh, kind of leaders in in some sense even if they're just thought leaders but but 
I think it's a movement in the sense that it is a shared experience yes. by so many people. Yes. And I think the experiences are very similar a- across like a large swath of geography. I think mm-hmm. uh, you could talk to someone who's deconstructing here in Florida and someone in California or Washington state across the country would have very similar experiences. Well, and I um, want to say too, we talk a lot about like evangelical fun fundamentalism on this podcast, but people deconstruct from all kinds of denominations yeah. and, and Christian mm-hmm. traditions. I know a lot of Roman Catholics who have started to deconstruct because of all the sex scandals that have happened that have like forced them to objectively look at the institutional church and say, do I want to be a part of something that, that, you know, lets this kind of stuff happen. So I think it's even fair to say that this is a movement because it is a shared experience with Christians among maybe every Christian tradition. Like it's something that's like ever present. Yeah. Uh, right, right, right now among like a, at least a large swath of Christian traditions, yeah. not just the evangelical fundamental ones. I would agree with that. I, I would say it's probably more pronounced in the evangelical church, this kind of departure. And I think, I think one of the reasons for that is Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. I think that kind of- say politics, 100%. I mean, even prior to Donald Trump, the evangelical uh, uh, cohort, for lack of better words, mm-hmm. that was an absolutely targeted group of people in the U.S. by a specific political party yeah. for advancement. So yeah. absolutely. I, I was talking to a friend last night. I'm in, I'm in this, this like theology group and we met last night and wh- we were talking about um, like some of the differences between like millennials and Gen Zers and because uh, one of the people in there is a, she like teaches at FSU. And um, (laughs) we were talking about how like Gen Z like is what millennials would have been like if we hadn't been like punched down so much. Like if we hadn't experienced 9-11 when we were like teenagers and young adults and children. And if we hadn't had the great recession, like right as we were graduating college and couldn't find jobs. And uh, if we, you know, if we didn't go through the pandemic, like while we were raising children. And (laughs) so it just seems like at these critical moments in our in our lives we've had these really traumatic things happen in the world and also people really punch down on millennials and so I made the point like and if people didn't hate us yeah um so I think I think millennials uh have this kind of angsty cynicism that frankly is understand I'm right there. I am pretty cynical and pretty angsty about most things. And, and I feel like uh, Gen Zers are kind of like us without that. And so my friend was like, I feel like the deconstruction movement is like the, the most, like that is our generation. Like, of course, millennials are the ones to like deconstruct and like flip the tables and just like leave our religion like nothing defines our our uh generation better (laughs) than deconstruction and i feel like god God, that that is is so fascinating so true that is so fascinating i mean we literally uh, yes we 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 talk about deconstruction in a very specifically like religious faith-based context but aren't we like deconstructing everything like yes like that's kind of your point I think is what you're saying is that we we are the generation because of all of this that has had to been that has really in some ways been forced to re-examine everything that previous generations just assumed to be true or assumed to be readily available or you know fill in the blanks there but we have had to kind of have, have been forced to kind of look at everything. Yes. And that's not to say that millennials are the only ones deconstructing their faith. Sure. Um, Cause we know that's not true, but I, I think it, it's such a great representation of kind of who we are as a whole, that we just kind of walk into a space that doesn't, we feel like 
isn't right. It's not really fitting what it needs to. Uh, and isn't what we, everything that we were told it should be like, it, it's not what it's cracked up to be. And we look around and we're like, well, fuck it. Like you all hate us anyway. So, and then we just, like, yeah, one, uh, 100%. Also, I wonder if a little bit of this has to do with like survival instincts kicking yeah. in. Like we've been through so much collectively that we're also like, screw it. I don't care about like institutions, structural things anymore, because I just need to survive. Yeah. Like, you know? Yeah. Um, like we all know that we have trauma yeah. from like multiple different things. So we're like, why should I bow down to this? Like, <laughs> why should I bow down to this political system that, that isn't serving me in the way that it's supposed to? Why should I bow down to this religious system that, that mm. isn't serving anyone? <laughs> in the way that we were taught that it was supposed to growing up. So, um, yeah, I, I feel, I feel like that's, it's very true. I, um, also you're welcome Jen's ears. <laughs> I just feel like we're the ones that have to go through all the crap. So that actually <laughs> helps explain so much of like what I feel. Um, I, so I, uh, I, I'm kind of drawn to Gen Zers because mm -hmm. we have a lot in common. Yeah. I think there's a lot that we don't have in common, but, yeah. um, but that, that really helps me make, make sense a little bit. Like yeah. I, I have some really good friends that are Gen Zers and it doesn't really make any sense out of context, but everything you just said, like helps me make a little more sense. Yeah, and I'm not interested in making these sharp dividing lines and saying one generation sucks. Sure. sure yeah. In fact, I'm interested in like not doing that. And that's why I want to be like, like if anyone were to say like uh, Gen Z is better, like I, I would want to put that in context and be like, you guys have a lot of like freedoms and like just vocabulary and language that we fought really hard for everyone to have yeah and and we got a lot of crap as millennials I mean the term snowflake comes from them thinking you know people older than us thinking that we're too sensitive mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well why do they think that well because a lot of us started going to therapy yeah right. and then we were made fun of for it so we, through that, we developed a vocabulary that's very much become mainstream. And I think that's wonderful. I am so glad that younger generations are going to have those tools that mm -hmm. we didn't have, that we fought really hard for. But I don't think you can say that, you know, one generation is, is better than the generation before that didn't have those tools as accessible that had to fight for those tools and then yeah. handed them down. Yeah, no, I think that's totally fair. I think about the, uh, the queer community mm, who yeah. looks back on people like Harvey Milk and Marsha P. Johnson and uh, things like the Stonewall riots. Like there are always people that come before that yeah. kind of um, set the path yeah. forward. And I've, I've, I've never looked at millennials having done that and maybe that's because I've taken on a lot of that projected um judgment that it's we get really hard not to yeah it's mm. really hard not to but uh, the truth is we're all just standing on someone else's shoulders yeah yeah absolutely and I think I think millennials in particular for a lot of different reasons have had a really hard road um so we've just had we've just had a lot of bad things happen to us at really um distinct points in our lives and also um just just I think at the time that the internet came out and social media it was it was that provided a platform for people to um scream you darn kids in a way that like people couldn't have before and so it it was really hard for not, us not to internalize those messages about how useless and terrible and lazy we are yeah um because we could see it 
a lot more than previous generations could. That is that is such a good point too. I didn't <laughs> think about the power of the internet and social media and how that it changed has, everything. Well, sure, yeah, but like specifically this though, mm-hmm. um, how it was constantly in our faces. Um, yeah, yeah, all of those like BuzzFeed articles about millennials and their avocado toe. You know, it's like all the you know, like that was that's that that is such a thing, like. Mm-hmm generational stereotyping um but also generational projecting too like we've just talked most definitely yeah i was thinking as we were talking about institutions and things um i i got the chance to sit at the feet of nadia boltz weber um gosh this has been 2016 or 17 2017 um how um this was kind of before the deconstruction movement was like as large as it is now of course deconstruction has been happening under the surface for a while now but anyways she was she was kind of trying trying to get at something that's now kind of widely known i think but she back back then even four or five years ago it seemed revolutionary but she was talking about how people are leaving the church because they don't trust the institution anymore. Now, she made a very, very, very good point, I think, to say that we will always have institutions as humans who live in organized communities, whether those be governmental institutions, educational institutions, civic institutions, whatever they are, anytime humans live in community, that's just how we naturally organize ourselves and the church happens to be one of those and but people are people leave any institution uh or at least forsake any institution when they lose trust in that institution um it seems so kind of like kind of such like a basic thought now but back then four or five years ago hearing her say that it was kind of revolutionary yeah um to hear her talk about not not only people leaving the church as an institution but losing faith in government losing faith in the education system losing faith faith in all of these human organized institutions um and i don't know i i i guess i thought about that as we were talking about us as a generation as the millennial generation how deconstruction is kind of one of our identity markers I think now because of all that we've been through well I think a common thing among all that we've been through is institutional abuse institutional Mm -hmm. manipulation and all of that's been happening for you know as like old as the ages are but because of things like social media um, rapid news movement and you know all of that um it it becomes a lot more clear a lot more faster uh in a lot more waves i think than it ever has before um yeah and we're just we're just over the institutions yeah um and i think the evangelical support of donald trump this is true for me i think that really revealed the extent to which the church is is willing to set aside these ethics and morals that we were always taught the church was for and stood for in exchange for a seat at the political table mm-hmm. um and i think a lot of people myself included were really disgusted with that because we looked around at these people that you know we've been in community and church with and our parents and family members that taught us you know Jesus loves you Jesus tells us to love other people these like very basic things that are kind of we thought foundational to our faith and they're just totally set aside for to to support this man who doesn't embody a single he's the antithesis of the of these ethics that we were taught make up our faith and people became very disillusioned and i i think donald trump really helped to speed up that 
that kind of exodus from the church. And yeah, like what's what's like maybe the biggest way that a person loses trust in another person or in an institution or whatever, um, you see that person or uh, institution acting in a different way mm-hmm. to to put it plainly, you see them uh, acting a different way than how they preach. Like, you know, like see them walking a different way than how they talk. Um, Quickest way to lose trust in anyone or anything. Yeah, most definitely. So I've been seeing lately, I feel like some evangelicals have kind of become wise to like some of the language that is used in mm-hmm. among deconstruction people um i didn't like that i just said deconstruction people <laughs> people going through deconstruction <laughs> it almost sounded like deconstructed people <laughs> like like yeah, we're pulling ourselves I apart say deconstructionists but maybe. that doesn't really f- maybe that is correct i don't know I mean, I, I think I've heard people use that term before. Yeah, I have to. Well, we can use it. Yeah. My friend Karen uses the term deconstructionary. So like she okay. calls herself a deconstructionary. So, um, okay, yeah. that works. <laughs> well, they've been hearing this language and I think there, I think there's a good amount of co-opting it that's happening and, and it's not. I think there's a lot of trickery and like not good faith behavior that's happening. Um, like I see things like, um, like I'll see books that the title sounds very much like it would appeal to people in the deconstruction space who are dealing with different types of trauma, but really it's just evangelical beliefs repackaged and and I I will see like comments and like reviews of these books and they're very very vulnerably um upset Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. they have been led astray into reading these books that are that are very triggering for them. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. one that comes to mind that recently has been, I, I've recently been made aware of on Twitter. It's called Talking Back to Purity Culture. That sounds, sounds on, good. The fa- on the face of it, like someone who's been through purity culture and on the other side has something to say about how, much, how damaging it was. Mm-hmm. That is not what this book is. This, this book is just, it's, it's purity culture with a different, like wrapped in a bow. She's yeah. The, the author like advocates for like the idea of like sex being holy and waiting for marriage is still the best way to do it. And she tweeted something about like sex, like premarital sex or sex outside of marriage is not holy period. And it's like, we're like, stop using our language. It's like, please just stop. Like if you have this, this perspective and a book you want to write, like market it to your people, like, please, it's very triggering and traumatizing to, to keep seeing this literature that we think is going to be like a good gentle place for us and is going to offer some insight and then just to just to have you know the very systems that um harmed us reinforced and for us to spend money on these these books that think it's very um misleading i'll just say that and i think think it's the epitome of the manipulative kind of behavior yes that led to so many of us leaving the church in the first place yeah yeah and and for a while we felt kind of uh safe from that because it was pretty easy to spot like a baptist 
trying to uh, relate to us, you know, the, uh, the meme of like, hello, fellow kids. It was that, but now I feel like it's, it's becoming a little harder to parse that out. And, but I think, I think we just have to be careful. Like I have, I, I'm just a very skeptical person anyway. Um, and you're so I, I make, huh? I said, you're a millennial. Yes. I, I'm skeptical <laughs> and I'm cynical. And that actually serves me very well in life. Yeah, I'm probably, sure. I'm probably not going to pay money for your book unless I've done my due diligence mm-hmm. and I know that it's not going to harm me. Yeah. So I'm not giving you money. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I do things like, and, and I would recommend anyone read the reviews. Mm-hmm. You have to read the reviews and not just the good ones. Cause those are the five-star reviews are going to be stacked on top on Amazon. Go to the breakdown, go straight to those one-star reviews. And if the one-star reviewers seem like they're using language you're familiar with, if they seem well-versed in uh, deconstruction language in a way that, um, if, if they just seem like they're a part of the deconstruction movement, believe them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Beca- beca- or if they, if, if the review talks about how harmful it was, that's probably a big red flag. Yes, I actually see um, uh, the same thing playing out, like as a gay person, I see the same thing playing out oh, in the church. Yeah. Um, you know, back a couple of decades ago, mainline denominations like the Episcopal Church uh, started um, um, adopting taglines like the Episcopal Church welcomes you. Um, the Methodist Church had uh, open hearts, open doors or something like that. And different main lines have um, used that. And in, in, in some ways, authentically, I can speak for the um, Episcopal Church, definitely uh, used it in an authentic way. But a lot of churches and congregations took on that, like, we welcome you language. All are welcome mm-hmm. here. All are welcome yes. in our doors. And then you get inside the door and you find out that they don't marry gay people, that they don't ordain women, that they don't mm-hmm. ordain queer people, that, you know, you find that queer people can't be involved in music ministry and church governance mm-hmm. and all, you know, all this kind of stuff. And you start finding out all those things and you're like, and you, and and you feel really manipulated yes because they they are using and they're even on like the church's websites like plastered at the top are all of these phrases that some churches used authentically at first but the same language has been kind of co-opted mm-hmm. um and it's very manipulative um yeah, yeah. so it even I, happens in that in that context i wrote a whole blog post um about a couple years ago about like how to look for red flags in a church and when to when to leave your church because mm. I was in a church for a long time that called itself a seeker church mm-hmm. and like prided itself on everyone's welcome here we have such a quirky you know diverse congregation and and some of the red flags looking back now is like these like diverse people would be centered like front and center like oh yeah we have some atheists and agnostics here there would be like two people and and they would always like kind of trot them out as their like example like the tokens yeah Yeah. exactly and there would be like a few queer people and they would always be like the token queer people and oh we have people of different uh political beliefs and it's like kind of like there are some like liberal democrats there but like they freak they're like frequent argument yeah (laughs) you know it's like and so the the real defining moment for me was when um uh after after the court ruling 
for um, in favor of gay marriage. Shortly after that, there was a gay couple who had been in the church for a long time, like a like a long time, like raised their child in the church. Mm. There were big parts. They volunteered. They were they were huge in our church. And they um, they asked the pastor to marry them. And the pastor, the they had like a pastor's meeting to talk about it. And then um, they called, like it was like a Wednesday night where they said, we're going to have like a church meeting afterward for anyone who wants to stay. We're going to have to make an announcement. And I just had this really bad feeling because I knew they were going to announce like where they stood on it. Mm. And they announced that they, you know, they talked and prayed about it and they don't feel... They didn't feel that uh, they could, at the moment, marry same-sex couples. And I watched that couple leave in tears. And it was awful. It I will never forget that. And looking back, I should have walked out with them. I should have. But they did a few things. One, they said at this time. And so they left this like false, they left like just enough, you know, of like a, that would give you like a false belief that like that they could change their minds. A false hope. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they had always just said like, all are welcome. And, and we all felt that, that those the couple was loved and, but, but then when it came down to it, they weren't fully accepted. Yeah. And that's not enough. And so for me, I have a rule that if I, I mean, I'm not looking for a church, but if I were, if I see any sort of kind of non-specific language on their website I'm gonna email them or call them and ask them specifically are are you affirming of lgbtq people mm-hmm. and if they don't give me a straight answer then the answer is no yeah because too many churches are they're they're just you know they're dismissing it they're hiding behind it they're hiding behind this term welcoming. And I'm sorry, I probably shouldn't be the one speaking to this, but um, that was a really, that was a, that was a moment for me. And I regret not leaving after them. I think you should be speaking on it. You have a very personal experience that is a common experience of so many people and of so many queer people. Mm-hmm. Um there there's a difference in welcoming and affirming Mm -hmm. anyone can welcome you can open Mm -hmm. your doors and say anyone is welcome but do queer people or women or people of color even or homeless persons like let's really talk about this like does every single person that walks through your door does every one of those people have the same access mm-hmm. to all the sacraments that the church offers, have the same access to governance of the church, have the same access to church influence? Do, do all of those people, including the minority voices, are they affirmed in their minority to the point mm-hmm. of having equal access to everything that the majority voices have access to? Yes. If you can answer yes, then great. If you can't, then you can't call yourself affirming. You just can't. Um, can't. I think it's an important time here to mention a website called gaychurch.org for queer people who who do want to find a church. It's an excellent resource. You can put in your location, zip code city or whatever, and it will pull up a list of affirming churches. And I mean, affirming in the definition that I just gave. And it even will list things on the church uh, directory, like does this church marry gay people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so you actually get a, a very clear picture of those churches that actually do those things. Um, and so uh, if you're listening and want a resource, we'll, 
uh, put that in the description box, but it's gaychurch.org. Um, and I've seen other websites that do very similar things for women and, you know, mm-hmm. um, other minority voices that we were just talking about. So you can, uh, you can find those, but gaychurch.org is an excellent resource for this kind of thing. And I will say for women, a red flag for me is, is if the only women on staff are in administration or childcare and no, there are no women called pastors. It might be called like administrator or, you know, community engagement director or nursery director. If, if they um, have no women with the title pastor on their staff, I am not interested. Yeah. That's a big red flag. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, it's a, I mean, it's another way I hate to like, um, deduce everything and oversimplify everything, but it's another way that we use language to like manipulate, like, you know, yeah, we can give, we can give women this title and this, and this position and it, and it feels like a leadership position and it feels like you have some sway over the community, but you, but in all honesty, those women will never have access to be a pastor. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's like cut the linguistics, you know? Yeah. Um, mm. Yeah. They leave that title off for a reason. Yeah. And so they can't get mad at us for, for wanting specificity in the language. Yes. Yeah. And it's fair that we call out not only church, but any institution that, that uses language to Mm -hmm. manipulate or coerce or deceive or whatever, um, because they do it. Yeah. Yes. We live in an age of marketing (laughs) where it's, it's what you see. It's the facade. Most definitely. Important. Yeah. Okay, well, I actually do have a You Ain't Gonna Believe This Shit. Oh, um, and it revolves around Pastor Greg Locke, which I know that you <sighs> remember him. He's the pastor in a little town in Tennessee called Mount Juliet, um, where uh, Megan and I are both from a place near there. So we know mm-hmm. the place well, know the area well. And um, there was... Uh, I, because I like to torture myself, I go to Greg Locke's Instagram from time to time just to see what kind of things are being spewed and spouted. And um, uh, about a week ago, I guess, there was a post uh, with this guy named Pastor Arthur Pulowski. And he was holding a couple of books that Greg Locke had written. And I was like, what is, what is, what is, what is this dude about? And I read the caption and then I did some research on the guy. The guy is a fundamentalist evangelical pastor from Canada who um uh who had a warrant out for his arrest for continuing to host uh church functions in person during the pandemic and he um evaded arrest by coming across the border into America for something like four months he was here for a long time um and while he was here he made his rounds uh he did all the fox news interviews he went to greg locke's church they got some pictures together i'm sure he may have even preached at greg locke's church or whatever uh he met uh one of the trump kids i forget which one um maybe donald jr or something but anyways like it's it's like he took this tour around america while he was evading arrest for breaking the law in Canada um, to kind of garner support or whatever. And then when he got back to Canada, literally on the tarmac, police were waiting to take him into custody. And he has been taken into custody. Uh, I don't know what's kind of shaken out since then. I have, I have not done any more research since then, but I was just flabbergasted by the audacity and the gall as my grandmother would say, the gall, the gall, the gall yeah. of, 
uh, of these people. And God, we we talk about this so much, but like, when did you forget all that stuff that Jesus said about loving and caring for your neighbor? And um, God, the persecution complex, man. It's, I mean, I especially mean, for white yeah. men, like it's it is real. intoxicating. Isn't and the it? fact that like most, I'm, I'm um, making some assumptions here, conjecture maybe a little bit, but I think I have grounds and I think it's fair, but I, like, is it any wonder that we're seeing what we're seeing in a lot of cases when most Western Christian churches are led by white men? I mean, the, you know, persecution complex and everything. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, um, we could talk about that for hours, I think, too. But, Ooh, yeah. but I was like, straight white men. Yeah, it's unbelievable. But they call women emotional. <laughs> like, what? Lord, don't even get me started. What? <laughs> don't even get me started. Oh. <laughs> uh, I, I know him. it. Um, he did you also see that he was kicked off Twitter? Who was? Greg Locke. I did see that. Yes. So what are you getting into these days? So I've come across something that I think you would find some interest in too. Mm-hmm. Not that you never do, but especially this thing. Um it's called the Foxfire Festival. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, it happens in Northern Georgia. And uh, I think it happens in a couple of weeks, maybe this weekend even, but uh, it's usually in the fall in October. And it's kind of a celebration of all things Appalachian. Um, Ooh, music and culture that. and food and all that. I will not be able to go this year because of school. But what I have done and started to get into is... Um, there's a series of books called the Foxfire series. And I think that's where the title heard of, of the festival gets its name. And it literally is um, a book of interviews of Appalachian people. And it's everything from like recipes to, so this book is everything from wood carving and fiddle making and wooden sleds and gardening uh, and horse trading and making tar and logging. Uh, a little article here on Aunt Lola Cannon, whoever Aunt Lola was. Water systems, berry buckets, cheese making, um, just like knife making. There are also a couple of names here that, that like they're just the names of the people, I guess, that are topics in the article. Um, and I don't have a necessarily particular interest in like woodworking or anything. But it's fascinating to like page through this book and it literally is just like a treasure trove of Appalachian wisdom that's been passed down from generation it's, to generation. It's a whole culture. Literally, it's a whole culture. And I want to say there are at least like 10 books in the series over like totally random things. Uh, I'm most interested as a gardener in looking at Appalachian gardening and seeing like their tips on pest control or when to plant certain plants in this time of year, you know, that kind of thing. Um, So anyways, Foxfire, it's what I'm into these days. What are you into? Oh, that's really fascinating. Um, I've been getting into, I've been watching some things on TV. First of all, we watched Squid Game which I don't know if you've seen it. It's probably impossible for you to have like no idea what it is. I'm sure you've heard seen of it, it, but I haven't seen yeah. it. Um, but yeah, that it's was like really- the number one show on Netflix right now. Or yes. Something, yeah. I'm, uh, we finished it a couple nights ago. I'm still just thinking about it. You know, it's one uh, of those shows that's like, this uh-huh. is going to stick with me for a while. There's just a lot kind of going on in the background and even just the, the reason that it's so big right now and I've also been watching the way down yep I've heard of that one too oh man we could talk about that at length well I did feel to mention really quick I've got to throw them in because they're really good both the current American horror story season uh is really good if you're into horror and gore especially this season is particularly I I love that stuff I eat it up and midnight mass which is a new show on Netflix that's on um, my list. It's really good. I thought it was going to be more gory than it is. It's it's actually not gory for for those who like kind of a thriller more than like a horror show. Mm-hmm. It's it's much more a thriller, but it incorporates a lot of like religious 
themes and stuff. And so maybe especially for people who are either religious or deconstructing, because you know about all of these things, um, uh, it's, it's kind of like, well, no, I won't say that because it's not. Anyways, it's really, really good. Midnight Mass, um, great show. I'm like the typical guy who gets into spooky things around spooky month. And so it's like the perfect combination of things for me to watch. I listen to Lore in October. Oh, uh, yeah. So uh-huh. I feel that, but I don't really listen to it the rest of the year. Yeah, yeah. I also usually will go, and I've already done it this year. And uh, you know, the Bell Witch. The story of yes. the Bell Witch uh, is from Adams, Tennessee, mm-hmm. which is near White House, Tennessee, which is near where we're from. Um, There's so many books written on um, the Bell family and everything. And I usually go in and rent one book written about the Bell Witch and the Bell family and read it every October. So I actually picked up four books this year. I will not oh. make it through them all, but I got someone like witchcraft in New England in colonial New England and stuff like that so that's awesome I'm excited to read those well, let me tell y'all something for the audience <laughs> uh for for those who don't know much about Tennesseans they take the bell witch very seriously oh, Tennesseans yeah. are not playing around about the bell witch when I was a kid it was common knowledge if you went into the bathroom turned off the lights spun around like 10 times and called on the bell witch that she would appear in the mirror in the bathroom like mm-hmm. that was a thing for me and my friends and, like. and I think and my family is like not superstitious they're very you know I mean they're very religious but so they're very like not into that kind of stuff but they they take the bell witch very seriously and and I think that if you go tour like the the home and the site if, uh-huh. if your last name is bell you're not allowed to go no way yeah that's crazy like yeah i'm pretty sure and they even said like if you might be related to the family they don't want you you can't take this tour wow for yeah. those of you listening if you live anywhere near middle middle tennessee uh you can tour uh the adam's it's the Adams family, not the Bell family. No, wait. No, it's it the, is Bell the Bell family. family. In yeah. Adams, Tennessee. In yeah. Adams, Tennessee, you can go tour the homestead of the Bell family and the cave nearby. The cave is where the Bell witch is lives. To live now. Yeah. yeah. I haven't actually been. Have uh, you ever been up there? Mm-mm. Yeah. I kind of want to go, but I also don't want to bring back like all the woo woo bad spirits with me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I just know that like whenever like growing up whenever we'd talk about there'd always be someone whose last name was Bell that would be like I can't go. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> funny. Just a reminder, you can find us on Instagram at wrestlingwithgodpod.